Today on Bad Apple, we're going to be talking about Mr. Stinky. I'm Helen. And I'm Riley. And Mr. Stinky has been mentioned before in our podcast. Mm -hmm. In episode five, we did Mr. Cruel. And at that point, it was a toss up between the two men. And now we've returned to do Mr. Stinky justice. Let's get to the elephant in the room. Why is he called Mr. Stinky? Well, before he got his title, and while he was still unidentified, Mr. Stinky was just known as the plain old Donville Rapist. That was until an editor from Melbourne's Sunday Press newspaper came up with the label while they were running stories on his crimes. Also very similar to what happened with Mr. Cruel. Yeah, these media outlets really be coming up with the sensationalist names. They love their misters. <laughs> you could say that too. Yeah. So it's probably pretty easily deduced that there were reports that he smelled real bad. Mm. Real bad. And the reason he smelled so bad, apparently, was due to his work as a sharecropping farmer on dairy properties. So the smell was something like milk, manure, and chemicals. Farm chemicals. Like fertilizer? I that guess shit so. smells so bad. Yeah. So there we go. Do you know what sharecropping is? No. No, I actually don't either. Oh. Someone let us know what sharecropping means. I think it's the guy who, like, um, delegates the crops. Is it? <laughs> right. He shares the crops around. Right, right. Is it like <laughs> you do some cows, some wheat, some apples? Oh. I don't know if that's what it and is. And some shares. And some shares. Yeah. You invest in some you, stock. You invest in some crops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You crop all your shares together. And then you farm them. And then you farm them for bitcoins. <laughs> That's about as much as I know about shares, to be honest. Yeah. And farms. Yeah. So we're hopeless. But yeah, it doesn't sound like it smells real good. Yeah. I feel like each of these things on their own, like milk, manure, and chemicals alone. Yeah. Would smell bad. It was a triple threat and didn't have didn't have good enough hygiene. Yeah, what was he standards? Doing? Wash them clothes. Got roasted by the media. Yeah. I wonder if he read it and was like, oh what? I don't smell that bad. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Anyway. Now that that's out of the way, let's jump right into the story. Let's rewind to the sixties. More specifically, to Shepparton, Victoria in the sixties. Around this time, Shepparton had a population of around 17,500 people, and it was home to a lot of agriculture, manufacturing, and irrigation work. On Thursday the 10th of February 1966, 18-year-old panel beater Gary Haywood and 16-year-old Abina Madill were at a rock and roll dance at Shepparton Civic Hall. That sounds like so much fun. It does sound fun, doesn't it? A rock and roll dance. Yeah. Twisting. Yeah. Big skirts. What's that song um, about doing the twist? The it, the twist. The twist. I chubby checker or whatever. Yeah. yeah. My mum loves that song. Yeah. Shout out, mum. Wish a boy would take me to a rock and roll dance. Whenever that song would come on, like weddings or stuff, family gatherings, my mum pops Bust off. Down. She busts down. She twists. She's twisting. <laughs> anyway, prior to the dance, Gary Abina and a few other friends had been at Lake Victoria. They were drinking, and apparently sexual activity had occurred amongst them, according to the trial judge, whatever that means. Ooh, some kissing. Yeah. You know what? It gives me, it gives me like, have you ever seen Puberty Blues? 
No. It gives me like puberty blues, like grimy mm. teenage, like hooking up. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Gr- like ugh, awkward and uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. Do you think they were like taking turns with, you know, swapping no. around, or just in their designated couples? Yeah, I think they would have been. They would have paired up and would just like. Ugh. One went to like that side of the lake. And yeah. One went yeah. to the other side. It's gross. Something like that. I see. I anyway, see. I guess that's what you do when you're that age. You've been to Lake Victoria. I have. I've been to Shepparton. Good I've, place to make and it I've up. I've been to Lake Victoria. Um, I I'm gonna assume it looked a lot different back in this the lake era. It's actually I'm pretty sure it's like half man-made at this point. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's very like big and flat and open. There's not a lot of like little places you could go. You at just least have not to, now. Like, sit on the side and just be doing and it. just like pass in front of everyone. Dang. Gary had volunteered to drive everyone to the dance that night, so he'd picked everyone up. They'd gone to Lake Victoria, hung out for a bit, and then they all uh, went to the dance together. Mm. Yes, everyone. He was drink driving. You reckon? Yes. You know that. I reckon. Yeah. Maybe it was nineteen. Good boy. It was 1966. I don't think we had even... Did we even care then? Maybe it was the designated driver. Like you, Riz. Yeah, right. A good boy. A good... Gary was just a good boy. This is also like... This is the rock and roll dance, not billboards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this is the equivalent. We're talking about Shepparton here. At the here. Civic Hall. They were not serving alcohol at the Civic Hall. No, that's why they had to drink before. Oh, at the lake. At the lake. That's a prees. I think Gary might have been a good boy. Okay, maybe Gary didn't drink at the lake. Yeah. Anyway. I reckon. So Gary drives them all to the dance. He was a paddle beater. Do you even know what that is? No. Doesn't <laughs> sound like someone who drink drives, though. Okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I know a couple of paddle beaters, and they probably would. <laughs> <laughs> Gary and Abina left the dance a little later to go for a drive in Gary's car. Abina left some of her belongings with her friends at the dance as a token of her intention to return with Gary to drive them all home. Go for a drive? Yeah, all right, Gary. Smooth. Okay, they wanted some alone time. Yeah, a little alone time. Gary and Abina never returned to the dance, and their friends got worried. The next morning, at 5am, Gary's car was found with the petrol tank half full, abandoned in an area near Lake Victoria, which was known at the time as Lover's Lane. Abina's white leather shoulder bag, its contents intact, was found later in the dry bed of Castle Creek, adjacent to the Goulburn Valley Highway, about 22 kilometres from Shepparton. Two weeks later, on Saturday the 26th of February, 1966, Gary and Abina's bodies were found a little further along, 32 kilometres from Shepparton, in East Murchison. They were located in dense trees in a state forest along River Road, Gary's body was fully clothed, laying flat on his back. He had a single bullet wound in his head, and a twenty-two caliber bullet was found in his skull. Three meters from his body was the shell of the bullet, indicating that it had been fired from that distance. Abina was found lying flat on her back with her legs apart. The top half of her body was clothed, but the bottom half was not. Nearby her body, a small pile of her clothing, including her underwear, was found. It had been folded neatly and placed together. Avina's body was badly beaten all over, and it was determined that she had died as a result of a fractured skull. Her stockings were found 64 metres from her body, tied together to form a loop. 
The fibres on these stockings matched the fibres from Gary's pants, indicating that he had been tied up with the stockings. It was thought that the killer had bundled them into Gary's car at Lake Victoria at gunpoint, took them to the paddock at Murchison, where he shot Gary and then raped and murdered Abina, and then drove the car back to Lover's Lane. Despite all this evidence, the investigation never really gets a good lead, and the case goes cold. They don't manage to find who killed these two teenagers, and they were just teenagers. Mm. She was 16, remember? Very sad. And he was 18. They were just living their lives. Yeah. Had their whole future ahead of them. This event seemed to be a precursor to what the next decade was going to bring. Between the years of 1971 and 1984, a masked man was breaking into homes of women at night in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, including Donvale, Greensboro, Wheelers Hill, Edithvale and Clayton. Each break-in happened with the same MO. Whenever he entered, there was never a man home. It seemed like he had staked out the homes of these women, one for at least two weeks to establish who lived there, but the women were always either home alone or home with their young children when he made his way into the house. He would sometimes wear a balaclava or a stocking over his head to protect his identity. He would carry a knife and threaten his victims if they didn't do what he was asking. He would approach them and say something like, quote, I just want to make love. Oh, God, that hurt I me to say. I had a physical response to that. That, yeah. was, that is, ugh. And would sometimes tell them that he'd been watching them and knew their children were in the house. All up, there were at least 14 incidents during this time, one with a girl as young as 14. Like how he isolated his other victims, her parents were not home when it happened. In half the cases, the women were raped, and if not, there was attempted rape, indecent assault, and in one case, false imprisonment. Two of these victims were pregnant, and in all but one case, there were children present in the house. Mm. My god. We don't have a lot of details about every incident, but we'll run you through what a couple of these crimes looked like. In 1972, he entered a home where he choked and bashed a woman, but ran off when the woman's mother arrived. The victim was due to be married in four weeks, but couldn't even look at herself in the mirror. In 1977, he raped a single mother while her six-year-old daughter hid under her bed, and in 1977, he raped a woman while her toddler son was in the same room. There was never really enough evidence to link these together, let alone link them all to the same person. So the investigations never got very far. Yeah. And if you think about it, it's 14 cases over like more than 10 years. Mm -hmm. So in hindsight, we're like, oh, what the heck? But in the moment, like what? You read one news article a year about a break-in. Mm -hmm. You really going to tie them together? Probably yeah. not. But they weren't cold for that long. Someone was starting to put things together back at the police station. A young fingerprint expert, Sergeant Andrew Wall, connected the dots when they matched a fingerprint found in the FJ Holden owned by Gary Haywood to one of the prints found at one of the Donvale crime scenes. This was way before the computerised processing of fingerprints, so he had to do it all just using his eyes. Once these prints were matched... They knew that they were looking for a serial rapist and double murderer. However, the prints didn't match any that they had on file. And remember, we're in the 70s, so there was no such thing as a fingerprint database. So the case went cold for a little longer. What do you reckon Sergeant Andrew Wall was like? What do you think he was like? Hmm. He seems to really be on the forefront of some, like, 
technology here. Yeah, if he was writing his cover letter, I imagine he would write, he takes great initiative. Okay. He pays great attention to detail. Mm -hmm. And thinks of innovative solutions. Right. If I was him, that's what I would type into my cover letter and cite this (laughs) in my resume. Just as a dude. Oh. Do you think he was like cool or do you think he was like nerdy? Fine line. I keep switch I keep flopping between the two. Right. Can't he be cool and nerdy? I guess so. Like me. (laughs) Shameless plug. Call me. (laughs) Call me sergeant. (laughs) Yeah, he's like a cool nerdy guy. I picture him being really cool. But that's just me. I when I always do this. Whenever there's like a someone that we really like in a case, like a nice protagonist, like Andrew, yeah, Sergeant Wall, yeah, he is doing like I. I always give them the benefit of the doubt that I think they're just like great characters. Mm. You don't know. Maybe he was relentless. Maybe he couldn't let up. Mm. You know, overworking, overworking, really like fixated on mm. small things. So if the fingerprints didn't match any on the database. How did the police catch Mr. Stinky? Believe it or not, they didn't sniff him out. I thought that was a pretty good joke when I wrote it. Yeah. That's why I put it in the script. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. On the 16th of March, 1985, so 19 years after Gary and Abina were murdered, a man named Raymond Edmonds was arrested in Albury, New South Wales, on charges of indecent exposure while parked in his car. What the police didn't know is that they had caught Mr. Stinky. But he must have smelt fine that day. Yeah. When they dragged him out of the car. Yeah. <laughs> they weren't overcome with such repugnant <laughs> odour. <laughs> they weren't doing one of those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At the time, New South Wales law was slightly ahead of Victoria, and they had already introduced compulsory fingerprinting of all offenders after they were arrested. Welcome to the 80s. We're we moving up. use computers now. Yeah. Once his fingerprint was taken, it was matched to the print from Gary Haywood's car in 1966, and it was all over for Mr. Stinky. His case was actually used to advocate for national biometric databases in Australia. Yeah, they were like, look at this, it worked. Yeah, he's one of the reasons that if you're ever arrested, you'll get printed. You can blame him. Yeah. Edmonds was charged with double murder, three counts of rape, and two of attempted rape in Greensboro and Donvale. You might be thinking those numbers don't add up at all. And yeah, they don't. Yeah. Not all of Mr. Stinky's attacks had been attributed to him yet. Not yet. In fact, right now, it's like half. Slightly less than half. half. Yeah. Yeah. But due to a number of factors, Mm -hmm. I guess, we've got like the main one being underreporting or just late reporting. Even though some of these things might have happened in like 1972, you don't know how long it takes someone to be able to bring it up and talk about it. Could have been like 10 years could have gone by before they even report it, even longer maybe. Also just a lack of evidence from all of those scenes. If you delay at all in reporting something like that, mm-hmm. you lose so much of the evidence Also, they just wouldn't have been as much, like, they wouldn't have had that much forensic ability back then. Yeah. All we really were going off was fingerprints. We didn't have, like, rape kits, really. We didn't have, like, DNA. That wasn't really popping off until, like, the mid-80s or whatever. So, Mm. yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. That's why in this first uh, trial, he's only 
uh, there for about half of his attributed assaults. Yeah, so when Edmonds arrives for his trial in April 1986, he was 51 years old. The court was told that he had a massive sex drive and also a personality disorder, one which led him to believe that women were an inferior species. Nice. <laughs> yeah. You would probably just... Original. So today, you'd probably he's probably just an incel. <laughs> yeah. Other than this, the court was told that he didn't suffer from a psychiatric illness, had no intellectual impairment, and was of above-average intelligence. Edmonds was sentenced to two life sentences with no parole for the double murder and 30 years for the five rape convictions of Greensboro and Donvale. In November of 1994, he appealed to the Victorian Court of Appeal, arguing that the refusal of the sentencing judge to fix the non-parole period was an error, as that requires exceptional circumstances. So, for He's- context... Saying it's too harsh. He's saying that it's too... Because right now he's got no parole. He can never be released. Yeah. And he's like, well, you should only do that in exceptional circumstances. He thinks he's not exceptional. Yeah. The onus was on Edmonds to prove that there was a specific error in the exercise of the sentencing judge's discretion or that the exercise was plainly wrong. He's being quite bold here. I mean, you kind of have to. Oh, yeah. He's got to cash his chips at this point. Edmonds tried to say that the judge didn't take his mental impairment enough into account and that he took the rape offences too heavily in deciding his sentence. For all my law school homies that have just done crim, this is pre verdans still a little triggered from the exam. We're only recording this about three days after the exam, so still a bit upsetting to talk about this sentencing issue. But continue, Helen. I didn't know you could take rape offences too heavily. <laughs> Good. You have a point there. Great point. <laughs> it, they're rape offences. I think what um, he's saying <laughs> is that the judge used like the his sexual offences too much in deciding his murder sentence. Right. Oh. He's saying he should have separated them a little more. Oh. Well, maybe he shouldn't have done both. What, are you going to separate the man from the his actions? Listen, I'm just saying, I'm just clarifying his argument. I'm not saying I would argue yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah, so the Court of Appeal rejected this, saying that the evidence of his mental health had significant flaws and that the rapes were very relevant given the context of the murders, which took place before or after a sexual crime against the female victim. Yep. Thank you. Took the words right out of Helen's mouth. Uh, I should have I should have just... You should have just kept reading. I should have just let the Court of Appeal speak. <laughs> Who am I to say anything? <laughs> You did your best. You were on the right. I said, you were on the right track. Oh, too. I I spoke for the common people. Yeah, <laughs> the common man. Yeah, they said that quote the crimes of murder in the context of rape were horrific, and the applicant had thereafter demonstrated himself to be a persistent dangerous rapist. So back into jail he goes. Back he goes. No parole. See you later. Yeah, but don't worry, we're not done yet. Mm. Last year in two thousand and nineteen. On the 26th of September, Mr. Stinky makes a return. Edmonds is 75 and finally admits to the other offences that we mentioned earlier. So in addition, he admits four counts of rape, three of indecent assault, two of assault causing bodily harm, and one of false imprisonment. He's already going to spend the rest of his life in prison, but they had to sentence him anyway. He was sentenced to another 23 years and five months for these attacks on the other nine victims. Unfortunately, by the time he admitted to these offences in 2019, it was already too late for some of his victims, 
who had lived their whole lives without seeing their attacker brought to justice. For example, the girl who heard her mother's rape could never sleep alone and took her own life as an adult. Another victim lost her marriage and watched her son, who was eight at the time of her attack, turn to a life of drugs to cope. Edmund's lawyer told the court that he'd asked his client why it had taken him so long to come forward about these offences, and his client said that he didn't have any reason. His lawyer recognised that it was time that the victims got some peace of mind. As with most serial killers, there's always a little bit of speculation about what other crimes that remain unsolved might be linked to them. Yeah. Or if they had done more than they said that we don't even know about. Mmm. Definitely. Yeah. Just because there are 14 victims that we know of, it doesn't mean that that's the definitive list of all the crimes that he's committed. Eyes of the law. But eyes of the universe. Mm. We're back. The eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg. Who knows the amount of random attacks that went unreported. It has been alleged that Edmonds had committed other murders, potentially, and more than 32 other rapes, although he denies this. Let's run through a couple of these and think about whether Mr. Stinky might have been responsible. Kind of like a little mini-sode within this episode. Eight-year-old Eloise Wallage was abducted in the early hours of the morning on the 12th of January 1976 from her home in Beau Morris. Her father hadn't checked the front door, as he thought his wife had closed it, but she had forgotten. So the door was left unlocked. It's believed her abductor entered through the front door, went into Eloise's bedroom, and took her while she slept. There was no sign of a struggle. A lot of neighbours came forward with reports. At around midnight, neighbour Anne Same reported seeing a young man walking by the fence of the Wallages' home. Around the same time, Another neighbour had seen a young man jump the fence into the Wallage property after running across the street in front of her car. This is accompanied by two more reports of a child's cry and a car door slam at 2am, along with a dark green car speeding down Scott Street, a car which had been seen near the Wallage's house that neighbours couldn't recognise. Eloise's four-year-old brother was the one who raised the alarm when she wasn't in her bed at 7.30 that morning. He told police he had heard robbers, quote-unquote robbers, who had taken her, but he was too scared to do anything. He described a crackling noise, which would be consistent with footsteps on the seagrass covering of Eloise's bedroom floor. What is seagrass? Um, what the dugongs eat on her floor. She lived in Beaumaris. What? It's like near the beach. Beach vibes. Seagrass floor. Was that like a type of carpet? Uh, I don't really... <laughs> I think it's... No. Oh. It's so she not carpet. Straight up had seagrass. I feel like ground. it's like um you know how they make like straw baskets and stuff? Oh, okay. I think similar vibes to right. that. Right. So yeah, anyway, because of this, it's likely that her brother was telling the truth. First of all, kudos to the four year old boy. Yeah. Good going. And as the investigation rolled on, it did reveal that there were like family issues going on. Both of the parents were having affairs. There was like a divorce in sight. Mm. And they were both suspects, the father more so. But eventually they were both cleared. And the father was yeah. cleared later. But he was. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's very messy. Despite an extensive search effort and a $10,000 reward, Eloise was never found. Not much more is known about the case, given a significant lack of evidence. 
In terms of whether it's possible that she was taken by Mr. Stinky, I guess the invasion part seems somewhat consistent. If he'd been stalking the house like he usually did with victims, he might have noticed that the front door hadn't been locked and maybe saw it as an opportunity. Potentially, he had entered the home with the intention of attacking Eloise's mother, but once he realised that the father was home, just panicked and took Eloise. But I guess on the flip side, it doesn't really fit with his MO. He'd never kidnapped anyone, unless you count um, Abina and Gary. He also had never attacked any children before. Except the 14-year-old. Yeah. But this... She's uh, young. She's She's seven or whatever. Yeah. Not that we know of. He'd never attacked any children. Also, this area isn't really where he, like, hung out. It's a bit further south than Donvale in Greensboro. Anyway, they were never able to link him to it, so I guess we may never know. It doesn't really sound like him because the only consistent part is the invasion. Mm. And if it had been two separate crimes, that would still be consistent. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like two different perpetrators. Yeah. Someone had to break in the house. And... Mm. I guess maybe he could have just not staked out as good as he normally does. Yep. But doesn't quite, doesn't quite. Both parents were home and the dad, you know. It is a little different, isn't it? Yeah. The next possible victim is Elaine Jones. Elaine was a 39-year-old woman living in Box Hill in Melbourne. She had two daughters with her husband, Alan Jones, and they always spent Christmas and New Year's at the Tokemwall Town Beach Campground in New South Wales. During their holiday in 1980, Elaine left the family caravan one evening at around 9pm to walk to a local store to buy milk and cigarettes. The shopkeeper confirmed serving her at this store at around 10pm. However, Elaine never made it back to the caravan that night. Campers in the area reported hearing a scream at around 10.15pm and saw headlights around an area near the water supply pumping station. Alan and one of their daughters, Jennifer, set out to search for her on a small aluminium boat in the nearby Murray River. They found her near-naked body snagged against a log about half a mile downstream. Alan pulled her body into the boat and tried to cover her up with life jackets. However, he had a history of heart problems, and moments after he found Elaine, he suffered a fatal heart attack and died in the boat. Seven-year-old Jennifer was left stranded in the boat with her parents' bodies for around 10 minutes before she swam to shore to get help. That is amongst the most screwed up story I reckon I've come across in this whole podcast. Yeah. Yeah, that gave me that gave me a chill reading that. Yeah. Could you just I just couldn't even no imagine and for her to swim to shore. Mm, she would have been I can imagine she just would have like agonized over what to do. What do you do? Yeah. Leave your parents? Mm. You don't know. Like she, probably put, like, she probably put two and two together that they were dead, but, like, she wouldn't have known, like... Yeah. What, like, should I stay here? How do I get help? She had to swim. She had to jump out the boat into the river yeah. and swim. And flag someone down. Yeah, and then find someone. I think it might have been some, like... You know when you're a kid, you don't totally understand what's going on? Mm. I don't think that helped. That yeah. she was so young that she could have just, she could do that. Right. Not that it wouldn't emotionally scar her forever. I'm sure it did. Yeah. But like in the moment, if you're older and you're like, That's if that right. happened to you, you just, I just lose it. You'd you know? start processing it immediately. Yeah. I don't when think you're she, a kid, you're yeah. just like, oh. She'd probably swim to shore. Yeah. Does it. You're right. They live a bit more in the moment than us. 
Elaine's autopsy revealed severe head injuries with a fractured skull from a blunt weapon. She had had extensive bleeding and her throat was cut. Police believe that just after 10pm she had been bludgeoned to death, during which she was dragged to the suspect's vehicle on her way back from the shops. Because it was a tourist zone and there was no crime scene to investigate, investigators struggled to come up with answers. I read that in like an article as mm-hmm. to like why nothing happened. Yeah. But like, I'm like, no crime scene. Like, they just didn't know where it happened. I, I guess, guess they we... didn't know where it happened. Yeah. The only thing we know is maybe it was the water station. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Girls in town had described a creepy man, quote, perving on them during the day. They described him as quite tall, well-muscled, and wearing Speedo. Speedos. Speedos. Yeah. Just walking around in Speedos. You know, do you know, you know what that is? Like the swimming shorts. Yeah, like budgie smugglers. Yeah, right. But I think they were they were much more, they were a bit gross back in the day. Like bigger? Now they're kind of being reclaimed oh, as cool right. by some. Yeah, it would be weird if he was just wearing a Speedo. Yeah. This isn't a beach town, is it? Yeah, it's like... There's water there. Yeah, there's a... There's, there's a the, river. Right. Maybe it is a beach. They also said... Wait, it's called Tokomol Town Beach. Oh, don't even worry. It's fine. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Still, though. <laughs> Speedos. Wonder what colour it was. Mm. They also said that he had a big nose. A lot of residents said they saw this man acting strangely in different parts of town during the day and put together a composite sketch. But a lot of people are fairly sure that the man they saw was in Edmonds. Of course, this doesn't mean it wasn't him that killed Elaine, but it might have not been him that was being creepy. That could be a separate creepy Speedo-Man. Yeah, and then he might not have killed... Speedo-Man might not have killed Elaine. Yeah. But he was still creepy (laughs) Speedo-Man. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Let's hope it wasn't two separate people. That would be really... That would suck for creepy (laughs) Speedo-Man. Yeah, but he was still being creepy. He was being... (laughs) Yeah, right. The government offered a $100,000 reward for any information leading to the arrest of the killer. However, Elaine's murder remains unsolved. A lot of sources cite Edmonds having worked in the Tokenwall area when this happened, and it does align with his motive of attacking women when they are alone. Mm. But these sources, they're all over the place. Um, And I... I don't know, because if it was confirmed he was working there during that time, you'd think they would hammer this in a bit more. Mm. That's pretty damning, like, oh, he does this kind of stuff, and he was there. He was working there. Yeah. So I don't know about that. I just don't know about that citation. Yeah, yeah. We don't know where that info is coming from. Yeah. So Edmonds is 75 now. He's likely going to die in prison. Whether or not he confesses to any more crimes is for him to know and us to find out. There are many victims who believe that their attacker was Edmonds and who have pleaded with him to come forward and confess to anything else that he was involved in. Some people believe that he has committed over a hundred rapes despite only being convicted of less than 40. Strange. You'd think that when he came forward in 2019 just to just to confess more, mm-hmm. that he, he would, would leave just... some out. Yeah, wouldn't he just get it all off his chest at that point if that yeah. was what he wanted to do? Unless he picked, like his own top ten, and decided to only do that. Yeah. But why? I don't know. Do you think... This is... I'm speculating. Do you think if you, like, committed heaps and heaps of crimes, would they start to, like, blend together? Or do you think you would remember them all really distinctly? Nah. I reckon once you get over, like, 13, Mm. it would be hard to 
separate start them. Start picking them out, yeah. Yeah. You reckon? I think that's the case too. I think you would forget about some. Yeah, but I liken it to like, well, don't liken it, but like to another kind of big event you'd have reoccurring in your life, such as a ball. Yeah, right. See, I've been to like five balls yeah. and I can pick them apart. Yeah. But if I went to 13, I would stop even remembering what ball it was. Like, right. why was I going? Yeah. What yeah. did I even yeah. wear? So, yeah, I reckon like, I reckon when they commit a lot of crimes, maybe they do struggle to recall and tell them apart. Yeah. That's what I'm wondering. And he's getting old. Mm, he is old. He's going to start forgetting stuff. Mm. Yeah, damn. I also wanted to say with Elaine, mm. he doesn't normally, um, except for Abina, he doesn't really kill people. So yeah, and this was Elaine was nineteen eighty, which was over halfway of the spree. Mm-hmm. And in the whole the, of those ten years, he didn't kill anyone. Not that we know of. Not that we know of. You're right. Yeah, that's the that's the gag, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I guess we we don't know. Oh, how do we contract the court of the all-seeing eyes of the universe. Man, good question. If we knew that... We wouldn't have true crime. Exactly. I'd be out of the job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> out of the job I don't have. You're right. <laughs> you're right, you're right. Yeah. And maybe we need a bit of um mystery. Do you think that keeps it all in check? Yeah. Unsolved crimes? Yeah. I think... I think that pushes us to be better. We wouldn't have all those, like, fingerprint surveillance record keeping but technology but maybe it would be better if we didn't have you're that you're right but we're all about justice no hugs <laughs> only justice you think justice. like when people were cavemen they were trying to they were just well, like how do you think we have the law because we're not cavemen anymore because of cavemen they invented that real early shit an eye for an eye whatever that dude's name was hmm. keep it simple stupid I reckon we go back to that <laughs> <laughs> but then the whole world will be blind <laughs> Thanks for hanging in there, all of you that listened to episode five. You've hung around long enough that we've yeah. now come back to do what we said we would. Do you think they ever crossed paths? Wait a minute, when was Mr. Cruel? He was like, Mr. Cruel was like uh, mid-90s. Yeah, right. Maybe. Maybe in prison. But Maybe Mr. in Cruel's... a court hallway. Maybe. Maybe they were, they'd were moved in similar circles. You maybe know, they those... felt a connection because they were both named <laughs> Misters. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Anyway, that's enough. Yeah. That's enough from us. It's enough. We'll see you guys next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.